Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and this is a special PodSwap episode of Broadway Nation. Last December, it was my great pleasure to be a guest on Jeffrey Scott Parsons' terrific show, A Musical Theater Podcast. And this week, I'm thrilled to share that episode with my audience here on Broadway Nation. Think of this pod swap as sort of a summer replacement special. If you're too young to remember what those were, let me fill you in. Back in the heyday of television variety shows, the big primetime series would take a break during the summer months and be replaced by what were called summer replacement shows. As a kid, I always looked forward to those because they often served as pilots for what would become the next hit primetime variety series. So this week, Broadway Nation takes a break and is replaced by a musical theater podcast. On this episode, I join Jeffrey Scott Parsons to explore Jerry Herman's 1961 Broadway debut musical, Milk and Honey, which was headlined by the great Yiddish theater star Molly Pecan and the star of The Most Happy Fella, Robert Weed. This show, which was set in then-modern-day Israel, had a book by Donna Pell, and judging from the script and the production photos, it featured extensive dance sequences and ballets choreographed by Donald Sadler that showcased a chorus of hunky, shirtless male dancers wearing very short shorts, as well as the musical's triple-threat co-star Tommy Rawl. The success of the show put Jerry Herman firmly on the Broadway map and led directly to him being selected by producer David Merrick to create the score for Hello, Dolly. Jeffrey and I discuss all of that and more. 
As you will hear, there's a tremendous kinship between our two podcasts. Both Broadway Nation and a musical theater podcast take deep, thoughtful looks inside the history of the Broadway musical, its shows, and its creators, and we try to do that in a manner that is both critical and celebratory. I feel certain that if you enjoy Broadway Nation, you'll love a musical theater podcast. Here we go. In preparation for this, I listened to an interview with Jerry Herman where he talked about Milk and Honey, and he said he had, you know, just his face lights up when the when he thinks about it because it was such an incredible experience. But mostly he remembers the first orchestra read-through because he had never heard his music played by an orchestra before. Well, of course, off-Broadway, you wouldn't have. When he actually was the pianist for all those off-Broadway shows because they couldn't afford anybody. Right. So he's actually playing the piano f- for everything he does prior to this with just small combos. And all of a sudden, Hershey K had done these orchestrations, and he just said he dissolved into tears. Oh, that's so beautiful. And they're great orchestrations. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today is Christmas Day. Well, that's when the episode is coming out. And I already celebrated Christmas in July earlier this year. You all may remember by covering A Christmas Story, which is a really fun episode if you missed it. And why? Because this past summer was rough for me, and I really wanted an excuse to celebrate and make sugar cookies. But anyway, today, I I still wanted to celebrate, and I thought, you know, during this time of year, we talk so much about the little town of Bethlehem and Nazareth and far, far away on Judea's Plains, so we should cover a musical that's actually about Israel. And that's what we're doing. We're covering Jerry Herman's first big Broadway musical, Milk and Honey, And I'm so excited we're doing it, particularly because of the guest joining me to discuss it. He is a Broadway expert, director, writer, producer, lecturer, educator, uh, choreographer. He was the artistic director of the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle from 2000 to 2019, which, my gosh, how many times have we discussed the Fifth Ave on this podcast? Speaking of A Christmas Story. Anyway, um, what else do I want to say about you, David? He's the first guest on the podcast to have directed Carolee Carmelo in a Tony-nominated performance in the musical Scandalous. Uh, He's also a podcast host of his own show here on the Broadway Podcast Network. Everyone, please welcome David Armstrong. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here, Jeffrey. I'm really excited to talk about Milk and Honey, although I am disappointed I didn't get to talk about A Christmas Story (laughs) because, of course, that is very close to my heart because I produced the world premiere of A Christmas Story at the Fifth Avenue Theater. Yes, like you're all over that cast album. Yeah, well, we most of that score was written in the basement of the Fifth Avenue Theater uh, when after we hired uh, Pasek and Paul to do the show. And uh, it was a very short timeline, so we locked them in the basement and made them work. <laughs> You're like just like passing water and bread underneath the uh, underneath the door. It, um, was, it was it was not far from that, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had Ian Eisendrath on for that, and uh, he had when, just one wonderful things to say about that whole experience. Well, Ian was 
uh, was on our staff at that time. He was our resident musical director, and he was integral into making that show happen, especially on the timeline that we had. And, of course, he's gone on to work with them on every project since. Including Spirited, which is yeah. out this, this holiday season. So Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. cool. All right, before we jump into Milk and Honey, I want to know a little bit more about you. Like, forever a musical theater nerd? When did this hit? When did the bug get you? I was one of those strange kids that just knew from the beginning exactly what I wanted to do from the earliest time, the, the legendary story. And I'm sure I was interested in, in musical theater before that, mostly from television, from seeing mm. from the movies on television. I grew up in Cincinnati. I actually don't know the first live theater production I went to. It was probably a high school production of something. Wow. But when I was four or five years old, the story goes, and I've it doesn't quite add up. So I'm, I've always tried, I've tried to recreate this a couple times. <laughs> that we were my mother and her friend and the friend's daughter, who was around my age, a little younger, were they were taking us to the movies to see Dumbo. Okay. Disney's Dumbo. Sure. And they went to the wrong theater and we saw Gypsy instead. <laughs> <laughs> and from that moment on, and this part is true, I was obsessed with Gypsy. I apparently demanded to have the cast album. How I knew what a cast album was, I don't know. But That's I was immersed in Gypsy <laughs> From that moment on. <laughs> uh, that's why we're best friends, David. Uh, this is great. I love and that so much. And of course, when you're a kid, Gypsy is a, is a story about kids in show business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's about. And of course, I was, I'm sure I was less interested in the second half of the story than I was in the first half of the story. But that's what it's, it's about, kids on stage. And you see yourself in it. And obviously, I had taste from the very beginning. I knew what good was, so... You had amazing taste. And also, I think that Gypsy works, and I can't wait for an episode on Gypsy, but like it's operating on so many levels because I think that there is an entry point for children to understand the complex relationships of parents and children and and yeah. and then add show business into all of that. Like I, I understand why kids would be interested or at least fascinated by Gypsy. So from that moment on, or before or shortly after, I was, you know, fascinated by Broadway musicals, by by film musicals, and then went to started going to dancing school when I was six, and mm. got involved in creative dramatics, which is what they used to call it. I don't know if they use that term anymore, but it was, you know, basically theater for kids. You know, mm -hmm. it was how do you involve kids in their imagination and, and, and theatrical types of things. And so I was constantly doing that kind of stuff. I did shows. I did community theater shows. I was the kid in a lot of community theater shows and even college shows and stuff like that. I was never a professional kid, but did lots of theater. Talk about a really strange kid. I would organize the neighborhood into doing shows Attaboy. that I would produce and direct and write and star in before I knew what any of that meant other than star in. And so I often say I do now what I, I've done since I was 10 years old, basically. That's incredible. We have a lot in common because my scout troop had the best skits at scout camp. And you want to know why? Because of me. <laughs> because of you, of course. <laughs> um, no, exactly. And forcing everybody to get into character. Um, yeah. 
but I'm sure you did not let anybody slack off. Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you want this merit badge or not? <laughs> um, that's fantastic. So then you grow up, you become this artistic director. Was the goal when you joined Fifth Ave was to be creating theater that would then transfer to New York? Yeah. It, was that the goal or was that already the tradition? I'm not sure. It was not tradition. It had done. It had sort of dabbled in that. It had been part of the original tour that launched Jekyll and Hyde hmm. uh, a decade earlier than when I went to the fifth. But when I got that job, I was living in New York. I'd been working in New York. I'd been living in New York for 20 years and working in the theater. And I had a lot of context. So everybody I would run into, especially Broadway producers, I would say, I'm going to Seattle, I've uh, to the Fifth Avenue Theater, I think it would be a great place to try out shows. Hmm. So as as part of the mix of what we did what we did, and I just kept at that for the six months prior from the time I got the job to before I went to Seattle to take it. And after about being there six months, I got a call from some producers uh, who's, who said, well, we've got a show we, we, we want to talk to you about. And that show turned out to be Hairspray. Oh so, <laughs> yeah, so it was very fortuitous. It was very fortuitous that that was the first. It wasn't the first new movie. We actually did a different new musical that didn't go anywhere the year before. But um, it was the first one of the first shows that we did in a as a new musical in a mix of revivals and sometimes presenting people are often confused about the fifth Avenue because it was 90% a producing theater company during the time I was there. And that's what I was brought there to turn it into. Mm. It had been a presenting house prior to that for like tours coming through almost all tours. And then it started doing a mix of producing in tandem with uh, theater under the stars in Houston. Mm-hmm. And that was very successful for a while. And then that was, had sort of run its course. And when I was hired, it was to put the emphasis on producing based in Seattle, still with one or two tours in a season, mm. uh, which is very, almost no other theater does that is yeah, mostly producing with some presenting seems and like a crazy amount of staff work to make that. happen. Yeah. And what I added to it was then um, working in partnership with New York producers and then eventually on our own to produce new musicals. So during the time I was there, we produced 22 new musicals. Dang. And nine of them went to Broadway. Oh, my gosh. Two of them won the Tony Award. For Not Best bad. Yeah, Not so that's bad. A, well, it's crazy. That was, because that was I Memphis went, and Hairspray, right? Memphis and Hairspray. Yeah. If you would ask me in 2000 when I went to the theater, what is the what what do you see happening in the next 18 years in terms of what would be your dream? I would think one or two shows going to Broadway would have been what I would realistically have said. So it was way beyond what I ever imagined it could be. It just was luck. A lot of it was that when we did Hairspray, Margot Lyon, who was the lead producer on that had a fantastic time. The show, of course, was very successful. And she went to back to New York and literally told people, told her colleagues, I never want to do another show out of town anywhere except at the Fifth Avenue Theater. Oh. So that started a ball Dream. rolling. Yeah. Wow. Which was, again, just some of it was dumb luck. Some of it was just smart luck because just making sure to you know, talk to people and get the word out and do the things that I did. But it was fantastic. It was the job of a lifetime. That's so cool. 
Well, one of your, so I mentioned one of your latest uh, adventures has been into podcasting. And yeah. I love, I, I think we, our shows hold hands a lot. Tell me, tell me the pitch for your podcast. Sure. My podcast uh, came out of a course that I started teaching when I stepped down from the Fifth Avenue Theater. The, New, the University of Washington invited me to teach a course on the history of the musical theater or asked me if I would be interested in doing that. And I took a week or two to try to think about what would I do? What would I talk about? And I came up with a course which then inspired the podcast. And both of those have the same premise. My sort of subtitle for the podcast, which is called Broadway Nation, is the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. And that is very much what the the that I teach as well as this, uh, I do a big lecture course at the University of Washington School of Drama. Hallelujah. Beautiful. Well, I, I love that so much. We all know cultural and emotional impacts of musical theater are kind of high on my list in terms of priorities and, and talking about, and in particular, the gays and the Jews, man, two of the most <laughs> important forces in creating this beautiful tradition. And I'm so grateful to, to all of the wonderful people that, may have identified as either of that in our history. And I can think of few better representatives <laughs> than Mr. Jerry Herman, uh, who we'll be talking about today, composer extraordinaire of Hello, Dolly, Mame, Lacage au Wait, David Engel, tell me how to do this. Lacage au Fall, because I, I don't speak French, and he taught me how to do that. And Milk and Honey. So we've, we've talked a lot about Jerry Herman on the podcast, of course, and if you want to go back and listen to our Hello Dolly episode, listeners, you can hear about his childhood and growing up. But if you remember, he started out, I, I guess, in his composing career off-Broadway, writing reviews. You know, there was this big surge of off-Broadway musical theater review style shows that were really opportunities for amazing performers to strut their stuff. And, I mean, he was kind of the king of writing this material, right? And I, I think he wrote a lot of those songs while he was in college and mm. then came to New York, and it was, an, it was a way that songwriters could make a name for themselves, uh, at least in a small way, yeah. by putting together reviews of their songs or contributing their songs to the various reviews that you were, ha that were as you just said, were happening around town. And this turned out to be, I mean, this is like the dream scenario for this type of beginning of a career because producers came and saw his stuff. And one in particular by the name of Gerard Oystriker, maybe? I think it's, I heard Jerry Herman speak it because I listened to it, an interview with Jerry Herman and that. Osterreicher, I think, but Osterreicher. I, we may we might both be wrong. Hey, uh, <laughs> we love you, Gerard. Anyway, he yeah. approaches Jerry Herman and writer, actor, director Don. Is it Appel? I think uh, it's Appel. Yeah, about writing a musical about Israel, and he sends them literally across the world to Israel to take in the local flavors and, and surroundings to see what they can come up with. Now, what I consistently have to remind myself about this musical is this is pre-Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. Like, it's hard for me to think of musical theater before <laughs> Fiddler <laughs> on the Roof to, and, and to also recognize how much 
Jewish influence and culture was found in the art form from the beginning. And yet, like, this was the first big musical about Israel and and Jewish life. Yeah, it's part of a a series of musicals that happened in the 1960s that started to focus on Jewish life. But for the first time, because, uh, and I also heard um, or read something that Sheldon Harnick was talking about, that prior to this, Jewish writers... Exactly. Uh, Prior to this, Jewish writers, the generation before of Jewish writers didn't really want to identify as Jewish and didn't want to write about Jewish subjects. They were trying to, uh, you know, succeed in not in spite of their Jewishness because it was still, you know, uh, this was still a marginalized uh, group of people. It could kill a uh, career. So everybody's it, changing their names, right? I mean, everybody all of started our great changing composers. Names. They want to be Americans. They mm-hmm. want to be, and they want to be seen as Americans. And that happens until after World War II. And he was talking about this generation that comes of age after World War II has a very different idea. And you know, what the events that happened in World War II have a lot to do with this because mm. all of a sudden people want to, you know, celebrate their Jewishness for, for or at least identify strongly as, as Jewish. And this starts a series of shows. And it's hard to pin down exactly. There's, it starts a little bit in the 50s. I think Wish You Were Here maybe might mm. qualify as the first show with a strong Jewish content because it's set at a one of those you know Jewish summer camps uh, in the Catskills sure. kind of thing. Right. No, that's true. I, I didn't think about that. No, that's but very good that's point. that's back in the fifties. But there aren't a lot. You're right. And the sixties definitely takes a puts this on the front burner. And and Milk and Honey is right at the start of that. And then I can get it for you wholesale is another show with a strong Jewish flavor. One. Same season as this one, set in the garment districts in the world of the garment district of the 1930s. And then Funny Girl, I would say, is another show great, which great puts point. Jewishness right front. And then Fiddler, hmm. all of those within four years, basically four or five years. Wow! Except yeah. for uh, Wish You Were Here, which is back in the 50s. We also would need to talk because obviously Molly Picone is going to come up. Talking about Yiddish theater is going to be important to this particular title. And when you look at how Yiddish theater informed musical theater, not just from a sense of comedy and the performers who were popular in Yiddish theater, but what it has to say about Jewish performers who were coming to America to seek asylum, essentially. Right. Because they're they're not safe where they are in other places of the world and how that influx of Jewish artists brings artistic vitality to New York City. Absolutely. And the the Yiddish theater, which is not discussed, in my opinion, nearly as much as it should be in the history of Broadway, because it really is so much of the roots of the Broadway musical are in the Yiddish theater, which is happening almost simultaneously with the birth of the musical. So the two things are happening sort of like in parallel universes, uh, one, you know, one down on Second Avenue and the other in the in Times Square from starting in the, you know, 1900, basically, mm-hmm. more or less at the turn of that century. And so these things are happening and the Gershwins live on Second Avenue and are involved in Yiddish theater. And, and the, there's this all this interaction between them that's very seldom talked about. 
so you're right. It is crucial to the history and the development of the Broadway musical. And in so many ways, just the way they tell the stories, the way they use the music. And I often talk about what Jerry Herman does, the show tune, the Broadway show tune, is what happens when this Jewish tradition of music and this African-American tradition of music intersect. Mm. And that's what creates the Broadway show tune. Glorious. I love that math. We've had so many great conversations this year on the podcast about kind of our family tree of musical theater. Everything from, you know, finally discussing operetta and those roots in in Europe to the ones that were created here out of uh, racism and persecution, like a minstrelsy. And then I love this other layer that we haven't discussed, which is the Yiddish theater that's born out of people coming to America in order to express themselves artistically. Like that is part of our history as well. And that story... That's something to be proud of. We see that story vividly in Fiddler on the Roof. At the end of Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye and his family are moving to America and... The, the youngest girl in that family, I don't remember what the youngest kids' uh, names are. Oh, wait. Uh, yes, no, the, yes. the, the, the little two, kids. The two ones. The two, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Is the same age as Irving Berlin when he arrives in New York <gasps> at that exact same moment. Full body So chills. that's, Irving Berlin comes from Anatevka, basically. Anatevka is a fictional town. But that's the world he's coming from. Hmm. And his story is so amazing because he basically arrives in America completely uneducated, not speaking English, doesn't go past the third grade, probably, and invents American culture. (laughs) (laughs) You know, speaking of a math equation, my gosh, that's crazy. How does that happen? But that story is told through all through so many of these uh, creators. And then, you know, Jerry Herman becomes the second generation or maybe the third generation that this is passed down to, that this, that picks up this baton and carries it forward. Mm, That's great. Speaking of the end of Fiddler on the Roof, one of the famous lines from that last scene is from Yenta the Matchmaker. Uh, They're talking about maybe meeting again in Jerusalem Mm -hmm. and kind of pivoting into Milk and Honey There is this Jewish tradition of visiting Israel that starts churning up around there. But the history of this country is vast and complex, and it's also the size of New Jersey. Like, that Mm -hmm. blows my mind. It blows my mind that there's this tiny little place in the world that is home to some of the greatest miracles and some of the most contentious relationships ever, all within the state of New Jersey. And, of course, Yenta in the movie A Fiddler on the Roof is Molly Pecan, who is the star of Milk and Honey. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's Pecan, uh, of course, because Pecan would be like Latin I America. think it's Pecan. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, a, I'm from the Midwest. I say Pecan. Yeah, Pecan. <laughs> <laughs> I actually um, don't. I think I've always heard it as Molly Pecan, but I don't uh, know. No, yeah. I, you're probably right. You're probably right. Yeah. So to just touch on a little bit of history of Israel, and, and this is basically Hebrew Bible. Uh, we have Abraham, right? Abraham has two sons. One is Jacob, Jacob and sons, also known as Israel most of the time. His sons and his wives used to call him dad. And then the other was Esau. Is that right? Now I'm trying to remember from Sunday school days. 
and the brothers don't get along. Um, and I'm super like generalizing this, everybody, but one takes the northern part of Israel and one takes the southern part of Israel. And so there's always this like division of people who are kind of not getting along. From there, people are always conquering it. I mean, the, the Greeks amount, and the Romans and everybody. everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People keep coming in and taking it over. And probably the last group to do that, the Brits. And one of the guys in charge, I'm not getting the names right, chancellor, ambassador, somebody from the UK, decides that by creating an independent state of Israel, it's going to buoy the allies and unify them. So he writes this whole proclamation kind of to move forward the idea of making Israel its own country. So Israel independence doesn't really happen until... 19, what, 1940s? Is that right? Yeah, after World War II is really the incentive for this, partly because the events of World War II shine a light on this. And a lot of the the first people who move to Israel are Holocaust survivors Mm. and are trying to find a place to, the idea of they they should have a homeland, the, the Jews should have their own homeland, uh, or return to their homeland, however you want to look at it, yeah. is becomes you know cent- a centerpiece. But it is the founding of the state of Israel that allows, which I think is only like fifteen years old, when the events of uh, milk and honey happen. Mm-hmm. It's still pretty fresh. The idea of celebrating it, I think, is where this producer comes into play. And it's I always find that story you told so interesting because he just says, "I want to do a show about Israel, about modern Israel." Period. Go. And they have to figure it out. So cool. All that being said, a really interesting place and an incredibly complex place with a lot of history and yet also surprisingly new in terms of being recognized as an independent nation. Now, here's the thing, though, everybody. An epic drama, Milk and Honey is not that. What they what they came up with was something maybe more along the lines of a oh gosh a most happy fella. Well, of course, the Robert Weed is the star of Most Happy Fella, so well, and, that and is part of it. That absolutely, and he has one volume loud, <laughs> and it's yes. a glorious loud. But I would say Most Happy Fella is a much more dramatic story hmm. than Milk and Honey. Yeah, because Jerry Herman's bringing his cheerfulness for to it for sure and a lot more dancing there's a lot of dancing in this a lot of dancing which i was amazed just to read the script and see how much dancing there was we read through the script you and i now i have this theory that what we read was maybe written down by an assistant stage manager oh yeah (laughs) right definitely oh yeah i love those scripts though because it tells you everything that happened on beat five they do this no literally it says two counts of eight pass by and then ari gets up on a rock you know like we we don't need to know it but it's there and i and i'm grateful for it Um, i actually love reading those old stage manager scripts that was used to every script you got used to be like that because they were trying to help amateur groups just recreate what had happened. figure out what on earth they were doing because they're just gonna get this libretto full of music and yeah exactly yeah and the idea that you're supposed to do something else even in a high school and not recreate what was done on broadway is a very recent idea Mm. that somebody owns those rights 
they were actually trying to help people recreate the show as best they could. As opposed to protect their own artistic ideas. As protect the ideas, yeah. Wow. Do you know what this also reminds me of is in going through this show... And look, I went through, I have my BFA in musical theater, everybody. (laughs) But part of what we do in higher education now is about like, what are you bringing to the song and how are you acting through the song? And this kind of show, this kind of score is from a time period where like, just sing the song. (laughs) And if it's a good song, it'll do a lot of the work for you. I feel that yeah. way about a lot of Rodgers and Hart songs where it's like, don't try to do stuff with it because it was written to just be presented in kind of almost an opera way. I mean, the opera tradition definitely holds on to this much tighter than we do. But uh, do you understand what I mean by that? I do. I do. Uh, it's not that the performers back then didn't act. They no, just absolutely not. acted through the material more than imposing something on the material. There it is. Yes, exactly. But I agree with you that this Robert Weed has one volume. He's an opera. <laughs> he was an opera singer. And in this show, he's partnered with another opera sing- singer, Mimi Bissett. Is that her name? Uh, mm-hmm. Who is not my favorite voice. She's in, not a Barbara Cook. Yeah. No, she has a very heavy a wide vibrato kind of voice, which sounds terrific on certain songs, but not so good everywhere else. But it's, I'm not a big fan of that kind of classical voice to begin with. Uh, it's well, in, it's interesting because I always knew about this show and we're already diving into it and people are probably <laughs> like, what are you even talking about? But I always knew the show as Molly P. Her yeah, Molly show. Pecan, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's not really about her. Like she's I, the star, but she's the, plot the star, is not but about it's not about her at all. <laughs> yeah, that's really it is interesting because she doesn't really have a story. And what little story she has, her love story happens at the last minute like with a character minutes. who we only has maybe five lines. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so before anybody else gets confused yeah. and stops listening, let's uh, let's actually go through the show because so many of these things are going to come up. So the show begins in Israel. Go figure. And here's the thing, everybody. If you go to Spotify and you listen and you type in Milk and Honey and you click on that Jerry Herman original cast album and you and you look at it, on the cover are three young, gorgeous dancers, very scantily clad, in kind of like a glissade-type position in the air with gorgeous pointed feet. What this show is actually about, I have no idea why that is the the cover of the show, because what this show is actually about is older people who have all been widowed. Middle-aged people, yeah. Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Because they're not not old, by all means, but they have all kind of come into a similar point in their lives where they're like, I'm no spring chicken, and I think my romantic life is through. Yeah, they're in their 40s and 50s, which is a lot older in 1960 is much different than a 40, 50-year-old person today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) And and so right here at the top of the show, we meet a woman by the name of Ruth. And Ruth has come to Israel, as with the tradition of many people 
who maybe took Yenta's words, you know, literally and said next year in Jerusalem, they're coming to Israel to uh, connect to their lives. Like this is the trip to Mecca. This is the opportunity to connect to your history. And it is her and this group of widows and their little like pickle talk little ladies who are who are now in Israel right around Independence Day. As they're experiencing this new land, Ruth meets this man by the name of Phil. And Phil is played by Mr. Opera Voice. And he immediately, they immediately have this connection. He has been living there, even though he is not from there, he's been living there for a while with his daughter and her husband. He's starting to like the place so much that he starts to teach her some of the local customs. The first one being the word shalom and what it means, which because I'm in Hawaii, immediately, shalom rem- immediately reminded me of aloha, right? Yeah, the serves spirit, the same function. Yeah, it's like the, it's, it's not only a, a way to say hi, it is a spirit through which you interact with people around you. Right from the get-go, this song is like one of Cherry Herman's best freaking songs. It's so amazing. I love Shalom so much. I agree with you. It's such a beautiful melody, this lilting and a perfect uh, marriage of the lyric and the, and the, and the music together. Mm. It's so simple. What Jerry Herman can do is things seem simple, but it's actually really hard to pull that off. And he doesn't get enough credit for that. He he really doesn't. Yeah. It's operating from that place of spiritual abundance, milk and honey, if you will. Yeah. And then also has the sadness. And I, and I think that that's what I think is so gorgeous about Israeli music or maybe just the Jewish tradition of music is the, in, is the inherent sadness in it that makes mm-hmm. it beautiful and deep and more than just mindless optimism. Does yeah, that make there's sense? always this. Absolutely. It's a scale. It has its own scale, which is not the same as the Western scale that we're used to. And I'm trying to think what the name of that scale is. The uh, I don't will come know. to me in a minute. I do no, know, but because I teach cool. it. But I, some people call it the Jewish mode. Is is what uh, some musicians will refer to it as, and it's what it's part of what I was talking about before. The Jewish mode and the the blues scale are very very similar, mm. and it's part of why I think Jewish musicians and African American musicians, black musicians felt this affinity toward and what brought this Speaking connection. Speaking of George Gershwin, right. Exactly. is because it sounded like what they were used to. Mm. It just was a little different. There's an incredible podcast <laughs> called... Cry. There's an incredible podcast I highly recommend called, or a radio show that you can listen to called uh, Blues and Jews. Mm. And on that podcast, they play examples of Jewish, early Jewish music uh, like a, 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 a cantor in, in a synagogue performing, and then very early recordings of like black sharecroppers, uh, early early blues, the earliest, and they're almost identical. Oh wow! In the, and you just hear the connection between them. But in any event, I think there's this affinity that happens between it, which is what makes the show tune again. Wow, that's so cool. 
Um, I want to say one thing, yeah, though, because I agree with you that right off the bat, Jerry Herman, in his first Broadway show as a 29-year-old or however old he was, is just hitting it out of the park. And it even happens with the overture before that, oh, which I think the overture so right. is really exciting and really thrilling. I've never been the type of person that's like, oh, I miss the overtures. But when I listen to this one or shows like this, I'm like, yeah, it really does have a place. And what you said earlier about him being able to match lyric to music so well, you listen to the overture and you can tell which song is going to have the words milk and honey before you even hear the song being sung. (laughs) You can hear the orchestra literally singing milk and honey. (laughs) it's, It's a beautiful match. Anyway, I interrupted your story. No, no. That's literally <laughs> what the show is about, is about interrupting the story to, uh, to bring context and tears. So, the <laughs> so out of Shalom, lots of dancing for Independence Day. I mean, we're really kind of going into a Rodgers and Hammerstein type opportunity of bringing a culture and transporting the audience to a, a foreign quote unquote place that, that feels very strong in the show as well. Um, and also very much in that mode, I think in the Agnes de Mille mode of this, the choreographer here is Donald Sadler, but I yes. was surprised at how much dancing there was in the show and how much of it seemed to be not dream ballets, but dances that it were expressing emotion, expressing telling the story, especially yeah. in the term in, in regard to the character of David, who is the son-in-law of uh, Phil. Yeah, uh, me too. And, uh, and we'll talk more about that because we got to talk about Tommy Rawl. Yeah. As these two people, as Phil and Ruth are getting to know each other, we learn that Ruth's husband was a famous symphony conductor, like, yeah, like even Leonard Phil Bernstein has heard or something. Yeah, exactly. sure. Yeah. Has heard of him. And everybody in the place heard of him. It yeah. seems like he's famous. Yeah. Very famous. He has passed. He has passed on Phil's wife. And we will find this out later. Still alive, still kicking. They are still married and she is living in France. And it but, seems like they've just drifted apart and have very little relationship left. But at the same time, she absolutely refuses to give him a divorce. And look, everybody, we're we're trouncing into black ketchup territory, if you know what I mean. So, David, in case you don't know, I use the term black ketchup to refer to my great grandma who had these bottles, these condiment bottles in her basement because she was certain that they were still good and usable, even though the ketchup had turned black. She's like, it's fine. You know, like it was that generation of not recognizing that it's time to throw something away because they wanted to hold on to it so dearly. And I have used that to talk about some of our musicals that probably don't need to be produced nowadays for various reasons. And Milk and Honey, unfortunately, has a lot of those types of plot lines where it just probably wouldn't be relevant to an audience right now. Uh, I don't understand why this evil woman in France wouldn't want to give her husband that she wants nothing to do with a a divorce. Uh, I don't understand why everyone's so obsessed with getting married. You know, these things Mm -hmm. will probably keep it from being produced again. Well, and of course, it's happening right at the dawn of the women's liberation movement. Mm, Exactly. And if you read, I'm reading Mary Rogers' book right now, 
And it's interesting that she talks about the same period in the same way. And she's how obsessed she was about being married and finding a man. It's just part of what's going on in the world at this time. We're coming out of the 50s, but we're still in the 50s, really, in the early 60s. It's a really interesting period of time. And this Broadway season, 61 to 62, is one of my favorites. Because when we look at what came to Broadway in terms of musical theater to this year, you had How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, I Can Get For You Wholesale, Subways Are For Sleeping, all of which are kind of intellectual commentaries on American life. You've got gorgeous, lush scores like Milk and Honey. You've got No Strings, which is pushing the boundaries in terms of multiracial relationships. And Diane Carroll is, becomes the first black woman to win a Tony Award for Best music, uh, for best Leading Actress in a Musical. It's really this interesting push and pull. Kwamina's this season. It's a really fascinating time where you see it's it's not quite into the transition, but it's right there in the middle. And because of it, really interesting stuff pops to the surface, like rises to the surface. Yeah. But you're right. A lot of it is not actually... Producible. <laughs> addressing... Well, even like uh, No Strings, it has this interracial love story at the center of it, but there's no conflict about it being an interracial love story. That's... Mm. It's not what you expect it to be when you think we're going to go back, we're going to look at this show from 1962 or whatever it was, and this interracial romance, they don't address, it's just taken for granted in a way. Mm-hmm. But I think it's because they're avoiding the conflict. Yeah, it, it, it was enough to just even get it on the stage. Exactly. And it was shocking, I'm sure, to see it. Yeah. But they don't, they didn't need to talk about it, I guess. Yeah. In terms of the women expected to be married... They expected to be an adjunct to them to their husband, mm-hmm. and to not be that was to not fulfill your destiny as a woman. Yeah. So I think it's just we don't agree with that today, but it's doesn't mean that, that it wasn't is true. what they believe at yeah. the time. Yeah. They believe it wholeheartedly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, wh- one of Ruth's friends, here comes Molly P, is named Clara who is basically like a Jewish Dolly Levi. Like, like she's what Barbara Streisand was doing in the movie. <laughs> um, uh, only 20 years older. Only 20 years older, exactly. <laughs> and she has, she, her husband is Jaime. She lost Jaime, and he's like, he was just like this perfect husband. And she is uh, really interested in Ruth connecting with Phil, and she encourages her to go with him to, I guess it's kind of up north, where his daughter, who's named Barbara, and Barbara's husband, David, all kind of are working as farmers. And so Ruth agrees to go for the weekend uh, and kind of get to know them. In that area, in addition to David and Barbara, the the daughter and son-in-law, is this guy by the name of Adi, I believe is yes. how you say his name. Yeah, I think of Adi is about to be a father. His girlfriend, uh, because they're not married yet, is about to have a baby. So they are planning to get married. He, however, is not happy with living there in the farm and represents this other voice in Milk and Honey, which is the one that, I don't know, that... 
a little voice of dissent and reality that, that, yeah, that that's everything like, is not quite so great. perfect here. There's yeah. this is that we're in the middle of a desert and we're surrounded. This is the only sort of political aspect to the show, which mm-hmm. I think is also why it's not so interesting to us today, is that they don't deal with the politics of the time, except in this little bit of commentary that he has about we're you know, we're surrounded by people who hate us. Mm-hmm. And and there's danger here as well. He's always trying to get his his girlfriend to eat Hershey bars so that the the sun will come out being attuned to westernized type things and and hopefully want to live in a city with, near a hospital and, you know, th- those sorts of ideas. Yeah. And this is a group of farmers who are working together to settle the land, who to they're still working to create the country of Israel by doing this. Water is very scarce. Yeah, they're in the middle of a desert <laughs> yeah. to a certain extent. And the, the land is... And I, that commentary that Jerry Herman in, put in was very, very smart. And uh, he talked about that, too. He wrote the song Milk and Honey, and he thought, well, this is great. This is like an anthem. This could be the commercial yeah, for Israel. A new but, I, but then he said, that that's not the whole story. I need to add some... Descent. I need to show the other side of this, so you've which got he does Adi very effectively. And yeah, and a little counter melody, which is actually funny and milk pointed is sour. at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He points out all the. This is not exactly heaven on earth. Yeah, for anybody who thinks that Jerry Herman is all optimism all the time, right? Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factor's No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factor's menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, with no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today! 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All of this is being told throughout the show through dance as well. This working the land, laying like laying down pipes in, in the stage direction. So many pipes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all done through dance. It's um, very And cool. you look at the pictures of that and you see them holding these big pipes. And obviously they were using them as part of the choreography. They were using them. And the stories that they're laying pipes, I assume, to irrigate the land is what's yeah, happening. To bring water to the To bring water to the land. But Donald Sadler turns that into dance storytelling and also in the process and i don't think this is a an accident puts a bunch of really hunky shirtless guys on stage in very very short shorts if you look at those pictures (laughs) well this is cool though i'm glad we're talking about this because if you just read the script like i did and maybe that's why my brain is there the amount that being widowed that getting married that all of this like relationship drama is talked about is is almost exhausting but you add to it this storytelling because like you said they're not really willing to talk about the political statements but here they are being staged these people in a very oklahoma way are trying to settle the land are trying to tame it or at least work with it to find a place to live and does it make you stronger and tanner and and a little oily yeah and that's okay, too. <laughs> I don't know if you've looked at the pictures, but the beefcake aspect of the show just sort of jumps out at you no, in a way that I'm you don't expect. The, yeah, The cover work on Spotify, that's what I'm saying. Like That's they are what they these, were using to sell it, exactly. Yeah. They are selling it with, with sex. And I'm really interested to see what the audiences were actually feeling like the story gave them. Maybe they walked away just being like, weren't those dancers gorgeous? You know, I don't know. Well, but even even Molly Pecan character has a moment where she's surrounded by the shirtless boys and she talks about that. She said, yeah, so there it's definitely something they were aware of. (laughs) That's so cute. I love it. Go she gets Israeli all sort boys. of hot and bothered by it. Yeah. yeah. She yeah. has a great song here in the first act called Chin Up Ladies. I mean, just a, a perfect, a, a Jerry Herman song that I didn't know at all, to be honest. And it's great. It's great. She's so fun. If people, uh, listeners, you may not realize that we have already talked about Molly P. It's like back, back in the day, we talked about Minnie's Boys. And she was supposed to be the Shelley Winters role. I mean, that's who they actually wanted to play the mother of the Marx Brothers. So anyway, she's an incredible comedic talent and also got, she's got a great voice, great actor. Well, and I, what we appreciate today is that she was a giant star in the mm. Yiddish theater. Yes. She did dozens from, from childhood on. She was somebody that they created shows around. Mm. She has dozens of Yiddish theater musicals that are written just for her as vehicles to show off all her talents 
which apparently were many. And many. It's frustrating because you can't really see it. We don't have a lot of evidence of that. And, and she has a lot of dance well. breaks in this. Like it talks that, about her doing can-can kicks and all sorts of things. She has two, at least two big giant dance features in the middle of these, of the, of the, of each act of the show. And that struck me as well. It's like, wow, they've designed this show to show off Molly Pecan's dancing. Yeah. Which I didn't, Who knew which that I she don't was know much about. Who knew that that was part of what her bag of tricks was? But basically that if you went to see her, you expected her to dance. Wow. And it was one of the things of the Yiddish stars, almost all the Yiddish stars were triple threats. And I think maybe that idea came from there. They sang, they danced, they acted, they were comedians, they did all men and women. That was just expected that that's what they would be able to do. That's beautiful. I love that. What a great tradition to bring to musical theater because we have another true, true, 100% triple threat in the show, Tommy Rawl. He's the one who's playing the son-in-law, David. And I always knew him as a dancer because, like, in my flop book, they would always talk about the musical Juno and how Tommy Rawl had this amazing dance solo in, in, in this flop musical that it was one of the most incredible things you've ever seen in musical theater that few people saw in musical theater. And so I always thought of him as a dancer. And then I listened to this, him singing the song in the second act. Uh, what is that called? I Will Follow You. And yeah. this well, and dude's the title voice. Song. And the title song. Yeah, exactly. Milk and Honey. In a true trained tenor on top of it all. Speaking Phenomenal. of Barbara Streisand, he is the prince in Schwan Lake. Exactly. So I wrote down he was in nine Broadway shows. And in those shows, and he starts as a dancer, as a chorus boy, basically, mm-hmm. as a dancer. He dances for Jerome Robbins. He dances for Gower Champion. He dances for Agnes DeMille, multiple shows with Jerome Robbins. So he's the real deal dancer, which, of course, we can then see in the movies because he yeah. He did a lot of dancing in the movies. Star dancing. He's in the, he plays Kiss uh, Bill Calhoun in the movie of Kiss Me Kate mm-hmm. phenomenally. And my favorite clip of his, he's also in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Oh, he's of one course. of the guys. And, but my favorite clip is there's a clip with him and Bob Fosse doing this incredible duet in Give a Girl a Break, <gasps> which is one of the greatest pieces of dancing you will ever see. It's a challenge dance between Tommy Rawl and Bob Fosse. Oh. And it is staggeringly good. Okay. In We're a not very good movie. Good. Most people won't know it because, you, but you can find it easily on YouTube. It's, yeah. Yeah. Okay, definitely sharing that with everybody. Thank you for the so, recommendation. But you're right, and and he sings very well and then he in sings those his movies. Face off. But I had not but like even this. in those movies. You don't know that he's going to sing like this, like yeah. a, a very legit, incredible sound. Yeah, uh, it was quite Robert amazing. Weed can't dance like Tommy Rawl, <laughs> and yet that is exactly Tommy right. Tommy Rawl can sing almost fine. as well, sing pretty comparably to Robert Weed, exactly. Incredible. Go Tommy Rawl, a uh, true pioneer. And so handsome and so, yes. and uh, uh, very, very, if you watch him in Kiss Me Kate around these movies, he's great. He's terrific. Holding mm. his own in the comedy scenes with Ann Miller and all that kind of stuff. So at the end of the first act, amidst all of the hunky dancing and <laughs> laying pipe, which just sounds X-rated, uh, we've got, we get to this wedding, this gorgeous, very traditional wedding and what happens is Phil asks Ruth to stay. And, and to finally stay. tells her that he's married. Yeah, which is like the basis of all the drama for the rest of the show is can she feel good about staying with this man 
marrying him here religiously, but not like necessarily legally because he will still be married to this woman in France. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Anyway. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly um, right. They go, but they go to this wedding of Adi and, um, and his pregnant girlfriend who I can't remember her name. I feel bad. Who and are not married. Uh, she's, uh, she's, she's pregnant. Nine months pregnant and they're just getting married now. Yeah, exactly. Nobody seems to have a problem with it, by the way. I'm no, like it's very interesting. The sexual politics of the show are very confused in that way because this seems to Good be point. something that they, and they say, well, it doesn't, it's not a big deal here. We didn't even need to get married, we, but we're going to. Phil sings this song called Let's Not Waste a Moment. And this song then goes into the, the wedding sequence and it gives me chills just thinking about it. This is some of the best r- musical writing of anything in this Broadway season. Yeah, I, it's I, a wonderful sequence. It's an incredible sequence. I highly recommend everybody at least listen to it once because uh, you just don't hear stuff like this every day. And that song starts a Jerry Herman tradition, I think, which is this idea. It really uh, made me think of Kisser Now from uh, Dear World, this we only have this moment. Do not let this moment pass by. It only takes before, a moment. Yeah, before the parade passes by. I, mm-hmm. you, we have to do this now. Now, now, now. Don't waste a moment. Is 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 interesting that that becomes a theme through his shows. Yeah, that's so what true. I thought was fascinating, which you won't, you only know from reading the script, is this sequence culminates with Phil and Ruth going up the stairs to bed. Yeah. He's not pressuring her in any way, but they have come to, she's made her peace with, I love this man and we're going to, and this is what we're going to do, which I thought was really interesting that the curtain falls on this. Them leaving the wedding to go to This do their wedding own thing. juxtaposed with them going up to, to, uh, to have sex. I'm not sure exactly what we're supposed to feel about that, whether that's supposed to be a positive or a negative in terms of the the way they felt about it at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, are we ending on a crisis or yeah, are we ending that... on a, as an up ending or a down ending? I wasn't sure. Me either, because you, I get the feeling that we're supposed to feel like, oh, what's going to happen? Is she going to be okay with this? But uh, once again, social politics are so different now. I, yeah. There's, not a lot. Well, and and actually, in the second act, she does have she's she is not at peace with it. Oh, it, she right runs away the, in the next scene. Literally, yeah. the first scene in the second <laughs> act. By the way, Barbara has this whole meltdown too, of like the idea of Ruth staying with her father in Israel, like triggers her into this whole meltdown of how much she hates being there. And Which I her, thought was really not prepared for at all. No, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. Like she just seemed like she loved Israel. She loved being there until all of a sudden she doesn't. Yeah. Now maybe a, in their acting that we got, maybe that that just isn't on the page, but was there in the show. Yeah, I don't think so. I think uh, we <laughs> just, we <laughs> I just think that Barbara seems like a really confusing character. But yeah, yeah I, I I do think that they maybe wanted another voice of dissent of of also maybe doubt that goes into Ruth's mind because right at the beginning of Act Two, Ruth decides like she's out. Phil's like Ruth, Ruth, where are you? And she's gone. And Barbara's like, yeah, she left. She's gone to Tel Aviv, the big city, with her group of widow friends. 
in Tel Aviv, Phil finds Ruth. I don't know how he finds her in this huge city, but they find each other and uh, have kind of the discussion that you would expect. It's not very interesting. But what is interesting is our favorite Molly, a.k.a. Clara, favorite Molly P., finds this new guy. His name's Saul, short for Solomon. And she suddenly has this uh, possibility to have love. And so she sings a song called Hymn to Jaime, in which she has it out with her dead husband to see if maybe in a Dolly Levi sort of way, she can get his permission to get married again. Yeah, the parallels of talking to Ephraim and asking him to let her go are so clear. Yeah, yeah, almost carbon copy. Yeah, except that Jerry Herman hasn't written the Hello, Dolly yet, and I'm not, I I don't know even how aware he was of the matchmaker, which at this point, which is comes from the matchmaker. So whether this was just, I, I know it's hard to say. And of course, Jerry Herman is very influenced by his mother, who uh-huh. is probably contemporary with Molly Pecan. Mm-hmm. Many of his characters and many of the things that he writes are inspired by his mother. He always talks about open a new, or um, uh, it's today was her expression. She had a, she came home one day from school and she had a party laid out and he said, <laughs> why are we having a party? And she said, it's today. And so he, so he would draw, he drew on this stuff throughout his life. It's very interesting. I, so I wonder how much of this character is inspired by his own mother. Because once again, this show comes out of their trip to Israel. Jerry Herman's and the and the book writers. They it's one of the few shows that's not based on source material. Yeah, which is partly maybe why it's structurally uh, not too sound. Exactly because it's. I always say it's really hard to write a story. Almost impossible to create a really effective story. Mm. And it's really hard to write a musical. And if you put those two things you have together, to do both of them, <laughs> you are you you probably will not succeed. Wow. And most shows that were not based on source material have not succeeded. Great point. I so. will also go ahead and say that I think that this is miraculous. I think the fact that he was able to write such a compelling widowed character and that David Merrick showed up and saw it. I I can't help but see the blueprint (laughs) of God or the universe or whatever you want to say, laying the groundwork to say this guy needs to write Hello Dolly and change the world. When, of course, David Merrick has already optioned the matchmaker to turn into a musical. Yeah. So uh, you have to, it's not hard to imagine him sitting in the theater, seeing and him behind like, me oh. and going, oh, that's talking to Ephraim. Yeah, this is it. This is yeah. the guy. So whether Jerry Herman made the connection or not, Jerry, or David, Merrick David Merrick seems did. to have. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think that's pretty inspired. But it's a pretty great piece of special material. I mean, he's really adept at writing to Molly Pecan's strengths, but he clearly knows how to write for a star. Clearly. That's a great way of saying it. He knows how to write for a star. Give her what she needs to do. What she needs to do is to say yes to Saul, who also just happens to be a sweet little man who is in diamonds and has a fortune. (laughs) So uh, Molly P and Saul get married. And the end of the show, which just happens so, so fast, is that Phil realizes it would be wrong for Ruth to live with him without him getting a divorce first. So he 
at the airport is about ready to go to France to ask his wife for a divorce. Um, Ruth hopes that they will be able to come together in the future. And that's it. I mean, that's kind of it, right? Well, it, it definitely hangs on what maybe felt more compelling at the time of they are in love, they're committed to each other, and he's going to go and make it happen. Somehow he's going to get this divorce and make it happen so they can finally be together. Do you think that he does? I don't... I, look, I, I still don't understand why the French woman doesn't want to give him a divorce. So I say I'm, I'm thinking that this is going to be no problem. Yeah, I think it implies that he will... Because he's our hero, he will do whatever it takes to get that divorce and they will eventually be together. But it is interesting that the show ends on this note of... Question mark? Big question mark, exactly. It ends with a question mark. Will or will they not get together? Yeah. It's a really interesting show that I, I think if we're looking at, you know, cultural significance brings Israel to the forefront of musical theater, like we talked about for one of the first times. It puts Jerry Herman on a Broadway stage writing about widows that (laughs) will ultimately pay off big time in Hello, Dolly. And then there are these really glorious pieces of just musical magic. And when I look back and think of the things that I wish I could have seen in this show, I'm going to say Molly Pecan for sure, would have loved to see her do her thing because they created room for it everywhere throughout the show. And then there is this one sequence that we didn't talk about, which is when David, you know, after Barbara, the daughter, has her meltdown about not liking being in this desert farmland. David, her husband, says, okay, well, then let's leave because I want you to be happy. And she's like, no, I would never ask you to do that. And he said, no, I I feel like it's my responsibility. And so then she leaves. And there's this whole dance sequence in which Tommy Rawl, like, comes to terms with how deeply he feels the need to be a farmer and to be working this land. And the pull between that and becoming a, a businessman in America and how that preys on his identity and he dances it all out and I would have loved to have seen that I would have loved 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 to have seen that I agree with you and reading that description you just go I want to see how they did this what what he dances his emotions he 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 and which is interesting because that's what he got acclaimed for in Juno was a Mm -hmm. very similar dance piece of dance as emotional therapy expression yeah expression yeah Yeah. but I'm confused what happened what did they end up doing I, I, no one knows. Does he stay or does she go? Does what's the end of their story? I I was not clear about that. Nor was I. Yeah. Nor was I. I. I, That's why I said the ending happened so quickly because. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. It it sounds like they're staying, but I I don't know if they're going to be in the city, like if they're moving to Tel Aviv or if they're staying in the farm because Phil was going to build a house and then he stopped building the house. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I was actually talking about Tommy Rawls' character. What well, that's what that's what oh, I yes, mean. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, like I don't know if they continued working that land up there because that there was a project and then it got you know paused so that he could go to France. I don't know. Yeah, it, that that part was a little confusing. Again, maybe something happened physically that we don't mm. s- that's not on the page, but yeah. is is there. 
But I would love to go back and see Tommy Rawl in that show because it seems like a Broadway star that we just don't talk about. And even though Amen. we see him in movies and he's fantastic, he doesn't get talked about much there either. No, it's true. The other thing I would love to go back and see is when Molly Pecan went away to make a movie, Hermione Gingold replaced her. <gasps> That's right. <laughs> Which That's I right. can't quite imagine. But no, that seems like a completely different type right yes although this she's is like young, liaisons her, no that's true that is true. this is hermione gingold you know i guess although it's a decade she's already made Gigi, Gigi, but she if you think of her in Gigi, she we've she's already established because that what that's the 50s yeah so it's post Gigi. It just but, uh, feels vocally a bit rangy for Hermione. <laughs> and does she kick up her heels as, you know, in that yeah, way? Maybe, did they, maybe uh, she did they, re, did they revise the that? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, did they <laughs> lift her up into a giant lift at the end of the number? But she looks pretty great. There's some pictures of some publicity photos of her, not in the show, but like pre-publicity around that photos. Time. Around that time. Around her with the other stars. Uh, which are, she looks like it would be fun, but it would be, I would love to be able to go back and see that. And so this was a hit. Like, we're, here it, we are kind of talking about it as something that's not producible anymore, but it was, a, it ran. Yeah, it ran 545 performances. That's great. Which is, you know, modest, but, but successful. Apparently it didn't entirely make back its investment, mm. but it was a successful show. There's no, it was, it was a hit. That's yeah. really great. David, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for talking me through it. My pleasure. You are a fount of knowledge, but also I can tell how much you love it. You love the actual art form, which I think is even more important than knowing everything about it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's only interesting to me because I love it so much. I mean, that's what, that's what makes it fascinating. And the same thing with you. I, that's why, I do, as you said at the beginning, I think our, there's a kinship between our two podcasts because we are looking to the often looking to the past of Broadway and trying to really deeply understand it but also celebrate Agreed. it to a great extent. Agreed. Here's some more. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at a musical podcast. We're also on TikTok. We've got Patreon exclamation point where for only one dollar a month, you can receive bonus content on top of supporting the regular show. We have the T Public store where the profits we get from those great designs will go to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. What else do we have? We have our playlist on Spotify. We have a holiday one that just uh, came out. We announced that on social media, so go ahead and listen to that. Uh, since it's the end of the year, it's the last episode of the year, I want to give a shout-out to Michael Willett for doing our theme music and our artwork. Uh, he's the best. And shout out to all of you. Thank you so much for being a part of this wonderful 2022. I'm really, really pleased with what we were able to do this year and talk about and explore. And it wouldn't be possible without you. So love you lots. Thanks for being part of this podcasting community. Hey, David, tell us about your show. How do we follow you? Follow it. 
Uh, The show is called Broadway Nation. You can find it on the Broadway Podcast Network and everywhere that podcasts are found. And you can also uh, connect with me on, uh, we have a big Facebook group, more than 2,000 members on Facebook. People very passionate about musical theater, uh, connected to the podcast. Uh, And also you can find it, find me on Instagram and Twitter as well. David, you're the best. Have a wonderful holiday. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah to you. And everybody out there, remember, Shalom. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.